Welcome back to Free Observer and uh, to the sequel of uh, the last conversation that uh, we had with Mark Ivanu. Um, Mark, welcome back. Thank you, Casper. I appreciate you bringing me back on. It's uh, it's a pleasure. Uh, as I think I told you just just before we uh, we started recording, um, I talked to a whole bunch of friends from around the world and had them listen to it. And su- surprisingly, quite a lot of my American friends came back and said, "Wow, thank you for that interview. Uh, I didn't know half of these things about you know American politics." And the Europeans were just, I think, very very surprised. They did, they certainly didn't know half of it. Either. Yeah, it's amazing. You'd think that it would just be a lot of the Europeans who aren't aware of it. But uh, frankly, there's a lot of Americans who also are not aware of it because they're casual viewers of the mainstream media. And aside from that, they're not necessarily politically involved. And so until somebody tells them, they have no idea. It just really goes to show um, the importance of having a free media, a one that covers all angles and uh, and gets an equal amount of airing. Yeah, or, or at least, yeah, exactly. Free media, fair media, uh, objective media particularly, which is why the Free Observer is so great. Uh, you just cover the facts. And then people can make up their minds for themselves. Or if you are giving your opinion, people know it's your personal opinion and they can choose to accept it or not. But as long as they're getting all of the facts, they can make the judgment for themselves. Yeah, and you're, you're I mean, you're allowed to be, I mean, we, we certainly have opinions and that's no secret and I mean, everybody can hear that also in the choice of who you interview and the topics. I mean, there, there is a selection in everything, but at least you, as long as you make that apparent and you're saying, well, we're covering, uh, let's say the um, the voices that are silenced or the voices that have been disenfranchised, uh, and that's the angle that we choose to make. And then you try and make it as factual and backed up by evidence as you can and as rational and uh, and as open as is possible. Then I think it's justified. Yeah, I think unfortunately what you see with the the mainstream media or what people like to uh, dub the uh, fake news media is that they give you some stories, but first of all, they put their spin on it. Not only do they put their spin on it, they're only giving you what they want to give you as opposed to there's other stories, as you just pointed out, that don't get any coverage from the mainstream media. And so you would never know about it but for a free press or alternative media. And then to quote ourselves again from prior to recording, if uh, if last week was uh, was had some surprises, then we're just about to come out of the d- the dark in, in in a very substantial way now because we're going to talk about well, first of all, Trump, um, and that's going to uh, get a lot of people rallied. I think. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, he was frankly transformative for the United States. Uh, I know uh, former President Obama ran on uh, hope and change, but that was hope and change of the worst kind. Uh, he kind of wanted to fundamentally change America more towards socialism and, and communism, whereas President Trump didn't run on hope and change, but he did fundamentally change the country. He pushed the Republican Party more towards the grassroots, towards national populism uh, in a way that really is unprecedented here in the United States. I know Europe's had national populism for a while. But in the United States, it's uh, it was pretty brand new. And he kind of uh, transformed the Republican Party, but also the country and showed that uh, government, if you're a Republican, it used to always be, well, you want to eliminate government completely. You want to minimize it as much as you can. Um, you want to get rid of uh, taxes. You want uh, business to thrive, but you want the government to kind of be in the background the whole time. But I think uh, President Trump showed that might be a little unrealistic uh, instead of 
minimizing the government so much, how about make it do what it's supposed to do, which is work for the people and the best interests of the country and its citizens. And so that's what he helped with and kind of transformed this notion that you can be a Republican, but also have a say in certain government bureaucracies that are favorable to the people as opposed to just minimizing it completely. Yeah, it really comes down to government serving the people, you know, being for the people rather than, as we talked about extensively last time, serving its own interests and becoming, you know, a career opportunist. Right, exactly. And so, you know, the Republican Party in the George Bush era was, you know, known to be uh, bailing out the wealthy elites, uh, bank bailouts, uh, endless wars, being in Iraq for uh, decades, uh, being in the Middle East. And President Trump kind of changed that notion of the Republican Party, made it back towards the the working class, the regular people. Indeed. Um, so that kind of leads me to the quote that I want to sort of launch this whole uh, topic off with. And it's it's one from, uh, from Donald Trump uh, himself. And I think that sort of embellishes pretty uh, clearly you know, everything that we've been saying and that we're going to be talking about. So, uh, so here it is. So he said, and forgive me because I don't know in which context he said this, um, uh, and, and what the date was, but it was right at the early stages might be during the election or at the very early stages of his uh, presidency for too long, a small group in our nation's capital has reaped the rewards of government. Whilst the people have borne the costs, Washington flourished, but the people did not share in its wealth. Politicians prospered, but the jobs left and the factories closed. The establishment protected itself, but not the citizens of our country. Yeah, that's um, that's exactly right. That's exactly the same, that momentum that he carried that uh, showed that the Republican Party is for the regular working class American, not just elites, just as the establishment on both sides, Republican and Democrat, are typically go towards the elites. What's best for lining the pockets of their rich buddies. Um, President Trump brought it back to the American people, the grassroots. And to give your audience an example of just how popular it was and how he galvanized the grassroots more so than any other presidential candidate or any other president, frankly, uh, in a long time, at least in my lifetime. Um, so I was at uh, CPAC 2021 in Orlando and President Trump was slated to speak uh, that Sunday, I think around three o'clock. He's usually a little late. Comes in probably three thirty. Uh, Republicans for National Renewal, my nonprofit. Typical star been, behavior. You see that at every pop and rock concert. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so we had an event Saturday. So I was there for that. I was hosting that, and then I had to fly out around five p.m. on Sunday. And so I thought, you know, before I fly, I think I'll walk over to the CPAC hotel and see what's going on. And there were people who didn't have any tickets to CPAC, right? So they're not going to see President Trump actually speak. They're outside of the venue. Uh -huh. But they are all lined up across the street. American flags, Trump flags. I saw the biggest flag I've ever seen in my life. It was probably 20 feet by 25 feet. I got on the street corner holding sort of it 10 up. 10 by 10 meters to, to Europeans. Right. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was humongous. Uh, Trump flag, Trump 2020. Um, I saw just crowds of people. And as you said, it was like a rock concert where people can't get in and they're still out there wanting to listen. These are people who are not going to actually see President Trump speak. They're all there. 
all regular folks, even people driving by on cars, so they can't even find a parking spot, right? Hmm. They're in a convertible. You see signs, uh, blacks for Trump, uh, people cheering. It was so high energy. I mean, it's high energy when you hear him speak when you're there, but even outside of that, before he even arrived, it was energy like you wouldn't see almost anywhere else. And so that's just to give an idea to your audience, those who have never actually been there in person, mm. how uh, charismatic and energetic um, President Trump is and what he brings that people, regular people who are not even going to see him speak are willing to drive down to where he's going to speak and support him. Yeah. I mean, that is very emblematic. And one of the points that that I want to sort of mention to the audience as well. So I think I was alongside virtually everybody else, just as you were in regards to Obama, that, you know, you were hugely supportive and then became a skeptic once you saw reality. I was kind of the opposite. I followed along uh, in the beginning with what uh, all the media told us and virtually, I think 90% of all Europeans, the attitude they had towards Trump without ever having encountered uh, <clears throat> any of his speeches, you know, you'd get very sort of manipulated snippets and um, and and very short versions of interviews or whatever. And it was all put together to present one image. And then it was full of commentaries. Um, when I when I then started uh, entering all these different uh, American um, friends of ours, these different groups where where you received the articles from uh, the alternative press and people's videos and so on, and actually sat down and listened to the speeches and so on, <laughs> my whole kind of worldview collapsed. And I had to just become a total revisionist because it had absolutely nothing to do with the way it had been presented. And I realized, and then from that point on, I realized how it was presented all the time and how uh, lacking in, in comprehensive and balanced reporting it was, how singular, and no one is singular, apart from Hitler perhaps, but you know, nothing is just one dimensional. And certainly someone who can uh, gather that level of enthusiasm all the way down to the ordinary person that, I mean, that has to be taken seriously. Yeah, and the fake news was, was actually pretty incredible and made me laugh several times. I mean, I saw articles where it said uh, President Trump had two scoops of ice cream. Everyone else had one. And this was supposed to be a scandal. And I thought, <laughs> oh, this must be satire. But no, I think it was on CNN and they were serious. And I thought, okay, this, this, maybe I'll overlook that. Uh, what else do they have on him? The other one said uh, it was a big. He was at a town hall, and some young lady stood up and said, "Well, in your administration, are women going to be paid as much as men?" And she had this sassy attitude. And President Trump said they'll get paid as much if they do as good of a job. And oh, shocker! Everyone got offended. It made the headlines. President Trump says women will get paid the same only if they do as good of a job. Not thinking, well, yeah, that makes sense to me. And any woman who is proud of her work, doesn't want to get paid more just because she's a woman. She wants to get paid the same or more if she does as good of a job or better. I thought this is just common sense. But somehow it's a big controversy, you know, sexism. Uh, another Imagine one that if Hunter Biden got paid actually what his artwork was work, worth rather than 
<laughs> what a manipulated <laughs> gallery. Yeah, if only <laughs> money people allows it. As, as hard as they work, then uh, yeah, Hunter Biden wouldn't make as much money. And then you've got all these uh, super talented artists, you know, struggling to put bread on the table. Anyway, sorry, we're detracting. Yeah. <laughs> and then, well, and then another one, um, when I was still skeptical, I was uh, for Ted Cruz at first in the presidential uh, race, mm -hmm. 2016. And uh, President Sorry, Trump was we saying, say, so he's he's a very prominent senator um, who who ran as well in the uh, primaries. Yeah, yeah. Ted Cruz, Senator Ted Cruz is out of Texas, and he's actually one of the last standing out of the I think it was sixteen or eighteen uh, Republican candidates for presidency in two thousand sixteen. Ted Cruz was down to the last three, I believe, it was Ted Cruz, Marco Rubio, and President Trump. So mm -hmm. Ted Cruz is certainly popular. Uh, a lot of conservatives appreciated him. Mm -hmm. He's a very intelligent gentleman, a lawyer, arguing in front of the U.S. Supreme Court, uh, I think over 30-something cases at that point. Mm -hmm. And so he was a top contender. And he's kind of in line. He wasn't kind of national populist, but not in the same way as Trump was. Um, but, yeah, they were going at it. And um, I saw some coverage. I think there was a lot of uh, chaos happening in California at the time. No. And President Trump said uh, – <laughs> Well, there's people coming here from other countries, um, waving their flags and destroying our country. We need to do something about it. And at first, the media said, oh, this is racist, et cetera. And then I saw a report on the news, and I see, uh, well, I see some people who seem Hispanic. They're jumping on police cars and waving a Mexican flag. And I thought, wow, I think President Trump was actually right about this. Hmm. Um, I wasn't taking that seriously. I actually didn't like him that much at the time because I was Cruz. But after seeing that, I thought, you know, I think, I think he has a point. Uh, there are people from other countries here disrespecting the system, uh, standing on police cars, assaulting uh, Trump supporters, and waving the flag of another country. Uh, this isn't right, and something needs to be done about it. Mm. And that's why I started kind of coming around to President Trump. But it, it wasn't immediate, that's for sure. Taking that border issue and immigration um there is another one, which is arguably one of his sort of most famed uh, quotes that uh, people all the time refer to. And again, it's when things are taken out of context and you don't provide the the background uh, in uh, for which it was made, then then it can seem completely ludicrous and and very very stark. And it was in relation to building that wall, which incidentally now the European Union wants to build on its southern border, having spent you know four years absolutely lambasting Trump for being such an idiot as wanting to build a wall, you know, and keeping people out. Anyway, there we go. Um, so, uh, so in relation to that, uh, he was saying, well, we need to, we need to check and control the immigration that's happening. This is at the peak of all these caravans of hundreds of thousands of people, um, predominantly young men. Um, and, his quote was actually based, it turned out, because I then listened to it in its entirety, and he does ramble on as, as all politicians, and that's something he could probably learn to control, and, and, and that would put him in an even better position. Anyway, so what he was saying, he was referring to two NGO studies. Now, NGOs are typically not the biggest advocates of Trump, right? I think we can all agree on that. Correct. So there were two yes. NGOs that had done... Um, an investigation into who these people were because they were obviously concerned that the right people are rescued and, and taken care of. And they found that what had happened was that these um, migrant uh, caravans had been infiltrated by 
the cartels of Mexico and some of the other um, uh, Central American states and um, and had forced many women and children to act as if they were wives or, or, or sisters and so on in order to get access. Uh, and they were raping them and and uh, and beating them throughout this whole process. And this is what was documented in these two reports by two different NGOs. And this is what F- Trump referred to in this infamous remark where he said, we don't want criminals and rapists, where everybody said, oh, the guy is calling all Mexicans. And I can understand that. When I heard it, I was outraged and furious. But having had these sort of revelations about the misrepresentation, I decided, okay, I'm going to sit down and listen through the whole thing and, and see what it it's referencing. And that's what he was referring to, you know, independent data that had been gathered by independent organizations that are firmly within the Democrat camp. Right. And people don't, people don't realize that. And in fact, I think people, a lot of people are ignorant to what's actually happening at the border. And I think I was probably one of those uh, before law school. Uh, once I got into law school, I interned at the Department of Justice at the uh, the appeal appellate division. Mm-hmm. And so if a case it goes through the trial process and then they can appeal, and that's where I was coming in at with the Department of Justice. And I mean, it, you don't even have to intern at the Department of Justice to see the cases. Uh, this is public information. And if you go to the, um, the immigration department, uh, you can see that there's a lot of, um, I mean, there's people from all over the world coming to the southern border, by the way. It's not, mm. people always think, oh, it's uh, brown people from Mexico or something. Like, no, it's not. It's uh, Middle Eastern, uh, there's Russians, there's uh, other Eastern Europeans, um, there's people that could be potentially terrorists. Uh, and then in addition to the cartels from Mexico and other uh, Latin America countries, who, yeah, they're, I mean, they're committing all kinds of horrible crimes, but that's kind of swept under the rug, rug by the mainstream media because if that were to be exposed in its entirety, nobody would support that, mm-hmm. right? Not even uh, your average liberal would support that. So if you were to, if they, if they were to put that out publicly, that'd be really bad for them. I know there's a kind of more right-leaning media, alternative media who puts that information out there, but the mainstream media almost never talks about that. Uh, I mean, I haven't looked through it personally myself as to the specific statistics, but if you were to try to find how many articles or news stories are published by the mainstream media regarding the cartels, you could probably count it on one hand. And even when it was mentioned, it was probably just brushed over, just kind of a, uh, well, I think there, yeah, there's some bad people coming too, but it's all good people besides them. I mean, that's probably the kind of coverage you'd see on it for the mainstream media. Um, but yeah, it's, uh, it's, if you even read some of these cases, you would see this is really, really bad. I mean, you're talking people being smuggled in trunks. Uh, mm-hmm. sometimes they arrive dead. Sometimes they're half dead. Uh, people being Mal- smuggled. Malnourished, mal- malnutritious. Uh, it's, it's horrific. Right. Chil- uh, children missing fingers because the parents couldn't pay. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's the, some of the worst atrocities happen at that Southern border, for people to come over here, which first of all is a testament that America maybe isn't so racist and maybe is so good that these people are willing to send their children by themselves to come over here. But I would say those parents are irresponsible. First of all, you should never entrust your child to a drug cartel, knowing what they may have to go through. Uh, But secondly, 
the American government should be doing something about that too. They should say, hey, these children are showing up with missing fingers or they've been raped multiple times, et cetera. Uh, we need to put a stop to this immediately. Mm-hmm. When you get a leftist administration, that's not happening. Yeah. And maybe they try to stop it a little bit, but they're, cert- they're certainly not putting it out there. They don't want anyone to know the atrocities happening at the southern border. And hopefully uh, go- uh, Texas gets a new government, a new governor, because uh, Gra- Greg Abbott is not doing it. We need a new governor who will actually secure that border and act within the state because the federal government obviously is not taking a whole lot of action there. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Um And if we look at uh, some of the other uh, kind of subjects uh, that that he was um, propagating, um, they remind me very much of uh, Republicans for Renewal. I mean, uh, we, we we went through obviously uh, the ones that that you have as uh, some of the primary focal areas. And if I if I looked at Trump's, it was you know foreign aid needs to be revised and it should be uh, based around reinvestment in the U.S. And I remember at the time he was even talking about, you know, the bringing home manufacturing uh, was also to ensure uh, supply chain security when it came to, you know, essential services uh, and products like, you know, anything from auto manufacturing and, and semiconductors and so on. And I mean, the reason why I laugh and smile is because this is like the hottest topic in today's world right now. It's it's front page of every newspaper. And the guy was called a moron and an idiot. He didn't understand globalism. He was going to impoverish the world. And, you know, he didn't understand how this worked. And it, this was this whole point about resilience over efficiency. So rather than just, um, let's say, guaranteeing uh, the extraordinary profits of a few global companies, That you should be looking at it from a national interest perspective, like national interest perspective, and I mean this 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 is every country's you know ultimate ambition right now. But again, it's like we had to go through four years of lamentation and beating up and ridiculing, only to arrive at exactly the same conclusion. Right, it was the it's the most astonishing thing, right? Well, a country. A uh, representative of a country should stand up for their country first and foremost. That's pretty crazy, apparently, when it comes to the United States. Um, and that's what President Trump did. Uh, under President Trump, for example, we were en- energy independent. He was building a Keystone Pipeline. Um, we were exporting oil. Uh, now uh, we have a shortage or bringing in the reserves mm. because we decided we wanted to be green. And so by being green, it just means that we – halt our production or our transportation, and instead we pay more money to another country <laughs> who's producing energy in a much less clean way, and we're depending on them, but we're green, so we're okay. Even though it's supposed to be climate change globally or global warming, global cooling, whatever you want to call it, it's a global situation, but um, since we're not actually producing it, then we're okay. Mm. It makes no sense. Even though it compromises complete energy independence, yeah. Right. Someone across the ocean is doing it. Well, it's still affecting the globe. So why not just do it yourself and do it cleanly? And the globe would be better off that way anyway. Mm. So from a a logic standpoint, it doesn't make any sense. Uh, But it does make sense, though, if you're trying to hurt the country. If you're trying to hurt the United States, you don't want the United States to be independent. You want them to depend on other countries And they're going to be uh, not as powerful as they could be or not as strong as they could be. And so in that sense, I guess it would make sense logically 
why you would do that. But for me, uh, uh, if you're concerned about climate change or global warming, you would probably want, you know, you have a need for the energy. You'd want it produced as cleanly as possible. So why not, if you know you can do it cleaner than your neighbor, you do it. And it's not only helping you from a national perspective, an economic perspective, it's also helping the environment, which I, it's lost on some people. Some people understand it, but people were really cheering on the, the, when President Biden, I hate to say president, but when <laughs> President Biden comes in or his handlers and they uh, do away with the Keystone Pipeline, the first thing, hmm. uh, now there's a lawsuit against the United States for that with the people who are working on it. And they have a pretty good case. They're saying, well, we were promised this amount of money to do this and you canceled it uh, midway through. Well, you owe us some damages. Uh, and in fact, so not only are we hurt by not having that energy, we now we're to being sued. <laughs> right. Now we have to pay for it and we're not getting we're the benefits. It. So, yeah. Breaking a contracts huge. in the process. Right. And I, I understand that the European audience is probably extremely concerned about uh, climate change, perhaps, or at least some form of impact on the environment. And I am too. I'm not in favor of pollution. Uh, when people say, oh, you're against uh, global warming or climate change, you, you just want people to pollute all over the place. No, I don't. We don't want plastic in the oceans. We don't want any of that. But we have to see what actually is effective and uh, compare that to our needs. And if you can have your needs met while also being clean, I think that's a win-win for everyone. And we're not doing that when we, first of all, cancel an efficient pipeline and then buy from a country like Russia who's producing that oil in a very unclean way and also damaging the environment. So I think that's a way we can come together on the climate change, whether you're a full believer in the doomsday theory or whether you just don't want pollution, you can agree on that. Mm. Well, I think we're about to witness um, a complete um, turnaround in terms of uh, uh, influence and power in, in the geopolitical system, uh, Russia and Saudi Arabia. And I believe we will imminently also see uh, Iran uh, with some very serious activity who are now suddenly finding themselves in this, well, from their perspective, very welcome situation of of being the ones who can control the taps of, of the oil markets, just like OPEC used to be. And we, you know, we are all familiar with the 70s and what happened there. And the largest oil producer, well, they became the largest oil producer under Trump, has now suddenly decided to scale everything back just going into the winter season. I mean, you, you couldn't you couldn't police it any worse than it has been, but but let's leave uh, let's leave the environmental debate for 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 another time. It, one of the other topics was immigration. We've covered that, and then there is one that's going to really require explanation for a European audience, and it's in relation to gun control and rights. What's often referred to as the Second Amendment uh, issue in in the U.S. Uh, and from a European perspective, this seems completely nuts that this should be upheld and, uh, you know, thoroughly antiquated. Can you please explain why is that so important, uh, both sort of constitutionally and, and we can also put some historical context to it? Sure. So the foundation of the Second Amendment was the right to bear arms. Um, they didn't want the tyrannical English government coming in and doing whatever they wanted. They knew that if they had guns... It would be sort of a check on the power of Britain. And um, obviously, they fought a revolutionary war, and we were the victors because people were allowed to have guns. 
Uh, I think historically, a lot of uh, authoritarian governments, the first thing they do when they take power is disarm the populace, right? Mm -hmm. So you saw that uh, in Nazi Germany. You see that when, uh, in Ma with uh, Chinese Mao and with other governments where they... And more recently, Australia and Canada. And, and look at... Right, Australia as well. That's there. exactly right. Oh. They want the people unarmed so that if they need to assert their authority or power over the people, it's much easier if the people don't have weapons, uh, particularly firearms. And so that's the kind of foundation of it. But also it's a foundation in a, a natural right, which is your right to self-preservation. And so if you are being attacked, um, you have a right to defend yourself. And it shouldn't matter that you are much smaller or much weaker or older. You still have a right to defend yourself. And if you can't do it through physical means, well, you need a gun because it's a great equalizer. And so a uh, big thing I know here in, in Texas, it's a red state, it's su southern um, we have a lot of gun ownership. We have much lower crime rates overall compared to other states who actually ban guns because guns find their ways into the hands of people who shouldn't have them, uh, criminals who don't care about the law. And so you end up with unarmed law-abiding citizens and armed criminals. Uh, whereas here in Texas, uh, anyone who's breaking into someone's home, for example, especially at night, they know they could, unless they've done a lot of research, they might be expecting a firearm. And so they're much more reluctant to do so. Mm. Whereas somewhere, uh, say Massachusetts, uh, Maryland, where guns are, are essentially banned, they know they can break into a house. And especially if it's, you know, just old people living there or, uh, you know, a single mother, they're not gonna have a gun. So if they have a gun, they have the huge advantage. They can go there and rob them. Uh, so I think uh, having the Second Amendment and having a strong support of the Second Amendment actually deters crime. And I know in Europe, it's crazy to think about guns, but I know in England, I followed that political scene for a bit. Sure, they don't have a whole lot of uh, quote-unquote gun crime, but they have uh, a lot of stabbings, yeah. a lot of uh, uh, assaults, uh, people being beat half to death. I mean, it's... You're going to have violence no matter what, but I think that the, the guns are going to kind of be an equalizer for those who may not be as physically capable, who just want to defend themselves, who would otherwise be helpful, helpless against any kind of attack. And so that's why uh, Americans in general support the Second Amendment, particularly uh, red states or people on the right support it because... And by red states, we, we mean Republican. Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, red states, Republican... Uh, and also, the, there's a lot of stories that are also swept under the rug by the mainstream media where there was a robbery situation, a criminal comes in with a gun, and someone who was a legal, law-abiding citizen who's allowed to have a gun stops the attack with their own gun. Mm. Uh, there's so many of those stories. Um, it's all over the alternative media. You're not going to see it on mainstream media, but I definitely suggest to your audience to look up those good guy with the gun stories where, you know, I think there's a shooting, it was a couple of years ago in Texas, actually. Someone came into a church, pulled out a gun, started trying to shoot. At least two other parishioners pulled out their own guns and stopped the attack right away. Before a mass murder took place. Right, yeah, yeah, exactly. Before no one else was killed, just the assailant. And so you wouldn't have that if no one else had a gun. If you're in uh, Chicago, if you're in, uh, in Maryland, uh, if you're in Baltimore, 
you wouldn't have that because most people, law-abiding citizens, don't have a gun. Yeah, I mean, you see it. You see it in all these. I don't think in Europe people are anywhere near um, informed about the level of rioting and yeah, quasi-anarchy-like situations that uh, many of the cities and, and, and states uh, now find themselves in, first during the whole sort of Black Lives Matter. I, I mean, that, that was all presented as if it was sort of a social justice movement, but it escalated very quickly into just unabashed anarchy and, and violence. Um, and again, you know, reading the European mainstream news, you, you had absolutely no notion of this. And then when I started seeing all these videos of black people, that, like the local community people being interviewed, they were, I mean, they were distraught, outraged, angry, and they were all saying, bring Trump back, uh, you know, or let's, let's, uh, let Trump send in the National Guard because my, my livelihood is being destroyed and my family is in danger. But this, of course, never reached anything remotely resembling, you know, national news. Right. And yeah, of course it wouldn't because that would go against the narrative that uh, Black Lives Matter is a, a peaceful organization engaging in peaceful protests. Uh, I like to say it's peaceful riots, basically. Uh, that's what they've called them. Um, it's very peaceful. Why is it not uh, fair to say maybe that that whole movement was also infiltrated by some, some, uh, some, or corrupted by some bad elements? Because I mean, uh, they, they obviously have a point, uh, and and there's a peaceful and 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 perfectly justified in terms of the both the way they're going about the business, but also you know the subject matter. Uh, but it's it's somehow always not always, but. Uh, at least in the States, has escalated into something very ugly. I think it's actually the reverse. I think it was uh, founded by corruption, Marxism. Right. Uh, the founders are lesbian Marxists, and they want to propagate that into the culture. And I think that there was people who weren't necessarily aware of that, who hear the, the term Black Lives Matter and say, well, yeah, I support that. And they came along for the ride, but I think that the the core, the foundation of it is actually very corrupt and uh, based in communism, whereas the people supporting it may or may not be into that. They may just think it's a friendly movement or they like, well, yeah, I think uh, I think black lives do matter. And they mean that in, in all good intentions. And so they're going along with it. But if they were to know what the core is it of it is and their actual goal, they would never support it. I mean, I saw Christians supporting it. And when I pointed them to the fact that the BLM website, I'm not sure if they still have it there. Maybe they took it away. But the BLM website used to say they were against the nuclear family. They were against God. Um, they wanted uh, LGBTQ rights and all that other stuff. And so they and again, I'm not making a judgment, although I think it's wrong. But whether or not you have an, a judgment on that part, um, you should know what the group stands for, the organization stands for. And I think a lot of people who initially supported it had no idea. They just thought, well, yeah, Black Lives Matter, of course. And so they supported it in that sense. But I think the actual core and foundation is Marxism. And that's what they're trying to push. They've been trying to push it. I think they're trying to uh, be more subtle about it now that it's come out a little bit. And so they took that off their website, I'm pretty sure, about the uh, nuclear family uh, uh, being against it. But overall, they're still very much a Marxist organization. The leaders are filthy rich, 
uh, and the people who support them are poor and commit crimes on behalf of them. So I think people need to take a look, uh, a closer look at that and not just hear the buzzword, Black Lives Matter. I mean, it's like saying, uh, we like kittens. I, I support that. But what does the We Like Kittens organization do? Well, maybe they go out and uh, kill puppies. Well, maybe you don't like that anymore. <laughs> so you can't go based off the name. You have to go based on what the, their core principles are and, and who's running it. And so I think if people take a closer look at that, they can make up their minds for themselves. I'm not telling anyone how to think, but check it out for yourself. See what the actual founders stand for and what they've propagated, and you might change your mind. Yeah, and and, and I mean, uh, after the whole defunding of the police and wanting to shut down the Second Amendment, I mean, the gun crime in the U.S. has just gone through the roof and, and substance abuse of various kinds as well which incidentally comes back to the whole immigration and border control. I mean, the country is being flooded with opioids. And that's another thing that's hardly talked about. Um, and that's that's something the cartels are now deeply involved in as well, which is obviously related to this uh, destabilized situation at the border. But just, uh, I, I, suddenly, I remembered going, going back to what you were saying about what you experienced at CPAC in terms of all these Trump supporters, just to come back to this uh, original topic that we had. Um, again, I, I, I had no notion of this until I started being sent the actual videos. And these are handheld cameras. It's unedited. It doesn't come with any commentary or editorial clipping by the CNN or Washington Post or NYT or any of those organizations. And I was just absolutely overwhelmed with the number of people coming from all walks of life. And the biggest shock of it all was that they were half of them were all brown and black, <laughs> you know, caravans, but a different types of caravan going for, I, I, I'm close to saying at least tens of miles, but I want to say hundreds of miles of unbroken three lane caravans of raging Trump supporters, you know, without as much as a skirmish or broken bottle anywhere, just like a street party, except the street was very, very long, uh, of hundreds of thousands of people, if not more. And they were just out having a, like a Trump celebration. It was unorganized from top down. It didn't have any it didn't have any party organization behind it. It was just totally decentral and, and organized from the bottom up by people themselves. I mean, if people knew this was happening and then if they saw the color of these people who were attending these things, and if people started reading a little bit about Candace Owens, for example, who I'm, by the way, I'm a massive fan of, um, they, they would have a completely different image, but they don't know any of this takes place or, and took place. Right. And unfortunately, I think, uh, and I do love Candace Owens and um, yeah, you're right. A lot of the supporters. Can we, let, let's just remind everybody who Candace Owens is. We know, but 90% right, of she's, our she's a, a black uh, conservative pundit has been extremely outspoken against the left. Uh, I think she used to be a leftist herself. She was. She said that she was, uh, she was lied to. She felt betrayed and um, she spoke very strongly against the establishment very strongly against the Democrats. Uh, she pointed out that the Democrats were keeping black people on their uh, plantation, so to speak, as in they were saying, if she you're used black, those very words. you yeah. have no choice. Yeah, if you're black, you have no choice. You have to vote Democrat. Uh, whether or not you agree with us, it doesn't matter. You're black, you're voting for us. 
And so she was trying to put a stop to that. Um, she led uh, several kind of, uh, what was it called? The, the walk away movement, which mm-hmm. was uh, for uh, African-Americans to walk away from the Democrat Party, saying it's okay to be conservative and black, which apparently was uh, a re- very, very revealing um, or revolution or uh, how do you say, uh, very surprising to a lot of people um, that someone could be black and not Republican. Yeah, and, uh, and I, I then started watching some of all these election rallies, even post the election, after he lost, they continue. And 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 there are sort of all black uh, Republicans, uh, all black pro-Trump gatherings, and they're playing jazz, soul, and they're all Christian. And, uh, and they had these massive gatherings of thousands of people. And, 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 and we're seeing none of this anywhere. And if we saw this, it would at least give some nuance to this singular image that we're being fed. And that's why I just think it's so important to, even if, if some of them are just anecdotal, um, images matter so much. Uh, the, link, the length of, of the reporting that you allocate to it, the timing, and, um, and the, the kind of the voices that you allow to be heard. Um, I, it, was, it was a huge revelation for me. Yeah, I think unfortunately, um, I think your European audience is probably more uh, open to it. Where if they were to see those images, they might think, "Well, wait a minute, the mainstream media was lying to me. It's not mm-hmm. a bunch of racists. Uh, there's actually people of all strides and colors who support President Trump and his agenda because it's not about race; it's about policy." Uh, but I think here in the states. Uh, I could show that to a liberal friend, for example, or somebody I might know is uh, a far leftist, and they would just say, well, whatever, those people are just brainwashed. They wouldn't think twice about it. They don't, I mean, you could have a so sea. If you, if you disagree yeah. with me, you're brain dead. Yeah, brainwashed. Right, you could have a sea of uh, black and uh, Mexican supporters, and they would just brush it off as if it didn't mean anything. Well, let's, they would still let's, call President Trump racist. So. Let's look at the facts, because that's much better than hearing our version of it. So, fact. Blacks, and especially Hispanics under Trump, increased their wealth substantially. Their incomes rose by some degree. I mean, very noticeably. Uh, yeah. which, is why, which is why so many of them are converting. And I, I remember reading polls uh, recently, where where Biden and and um, and Kamala Harris is now down to the lowest figures ever recorded in in U.S. political history, and the ones yeah. who have migrated is of course general Democrats, but particularly minorities who just automatically were always spoon fed this notion that if if you are colored, you support the Democrats, whatever your circumstances has been, no matter for how long they've occupied office, your your circumstances haven't changed. Your life remains uh, just as difficult as it was before, if not worse. Uh, and under Trump, they experienced a dramatic bettering of those things. So income levels rose uh, they and, and crime levels fell substantially. Since the change of government, it has gone markedly in the other direction. So it's again, what is it that matters? Is it the symbolism and the eloquence and the nice suits? Because he does wear terrible suits, Trump, or is it? And he does have terrible hair, um, or or is it the, the 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 substance of the policy and the actual effects of it? And this is, I, I believe, this is kind of 
a situation we are in now, an epoch we are in, where we are looking to dismantle the mirage of the symbolism and start dealing with the facts. It's very hard for a lot of people whose entire belief system uh, is built up around a paradigm which is purely, let's say, linguistic or symbolic. Yeah, well, especially for a European audience, I think probably the perception is that uh, in the United States, if you were uh, Hispanic or black, you automatically hate President Trump because he's a racist. Uh, nothing else really matters. Probably 90 percent uh, of your population hates him and doesn't vote for him. But uh, especially in the southern states, Hispanics actually do appreciate President Trump and his policies. And to give a personal example, um, I had a mobile mechanic, mobile mechanic come out and work on my car a few years ago, uh, back when President Trump first got into office, I think 2016, 2017. Um, and he was a Hispanic gentleman. He ran his own business. And um, we started talking a little bit. Somehow we got into politics, but nothing too heavy. And he said, you know what? I like President Trump. And I thought, oh. Well, tell me more. Why do you like him? Hmm. He said, well, he's uh, stopping a lot of the uh, drug dealers coming from South America. And uh, if you want someone to go help build the wall, I'll go down there and help them. He said, I'll uh, take a break from my business here and uh, I'll go lay some bricks. <laughs> and he didn't stop them from coming in. And so you would never hear about this or see this in the mainstream media, the fake yeah. news media. But there is actually a lot of Hispanics who agree with the policies, not because they uh, they hate other Hispanics coming in, but because they want the country and its citizens to be first. And they want the, so this guy, this guy was a legal immigrant. They want the other immigrants to do the same thing, go through the legal process. Mm. Don't cross illegally and don't bring drugs here. And so they had a big problem with uh, the drug cartels. And so this gentleman was saying, well, yeah, I'd go down there and help build a wall. Um, whatever President Trump needs, because we don't need those people here. They're bringing drugs and crime and not coming a legal way. Mm. This is a working class Hispanic gentleman from Mexico. Yeah, you heard a lot of, I've heard many, many of of, uh, of the same kind of uh, responses. My Even I myself, uh, when I was in my teens, my best friend was a, a Lebanese guy. And, uh, and he was, the, I, I, I'm not going to say racist, but he was the biggest advocate of, uh, of uh, immigration control. Because as he said, I and my friends, um, we, we've worked so hard to kind of assimilate and get an right. education and, and, and try and uh, establish a good life here. And the problem is, and understandably so, he says, even though it's wrong, we get sort of categorized with all the... The guys causing causing all the, um, the the criminality and and the disturbances and so on and so forth. And I've heard so many uh, naturalized Mexicans in the states say the same, that they are the ones more than anybody who wants this border issue resolved, because they are suffering the consequences. One because of the jobs, because of the social uh, judicial instability. That's a nice way of saying rising crime rates. Um, and then, of course, because they get uh, they get um, you know categorized um, as uh, because of their because of their skin color and and their, well, their history or their background. Yeah, not just that, but I think your European can, your European audience can appreciate this. 
say that um, you or one of your audience members from Europe wanted to come to the United States and become a, a citizen. First of all, you have to do a lot of paperwork. You have to pay a good amount of fees. I think it's a few thousand dollars at least. Uh, now you get lawyers involved, it's going to be more than that. So you have to go through this whole process. Um, you have to be a resident for a few years, and then you have to uh, pay some more fees, et cetera. So basically, it's a, big, it's a big pain and hassle for you to become an American citizen and be able to vote here. Now imagine somebody skips that whole process, lives here illegally for 10, 20 years, doesn't even bother to learn the language, is given a driver's license, and in some states can even vote, uh, hasn't paid uh, any a dime to move towards citizenship. Is that fair if you're a European immigrant and you want to come over here and become a citizen? You know, my mother was an immigrant from Portugal. She went through the whole process. She was told by Democrats here, well, you're an immigrant. You have to be a Democrat. You have to hate these racist Republicans. They don't want you here. But then she realized, wait a minute, I did the process. And illegals should do that too. I went through the, everything. I paid the fees. came here as a student. I waited years. And so why are they skipping the line and coming over here, working, not learning the language, and getting a bunch of benefits? Mm -hmm. And so that's what I propose, especially to your European audiences, um, when it comes to immigration. It's not necessarily, it's not racist to say, you know, people should go through the legal process because if you're much farther away, like you're in Europe, Africa, et cetera, it's tougher to get here than if you're on our southern border, you just walk across and it's unsecured and now you have all the benefits, but you didn't go through the process. And I think any anyone from Europe who's even attempted the process understands how daunting and onerous it is, and probably rightfully so, but you don't want people skipping the line and getting ahead of you just because they happen to be much closer to us. Yeah, and then the final remark perhaps on this one, that, you know, Mexico is, I think, officially the world's first or second largest, uh, number one or second ranking in terms of violent crime. So, uh, you know, that's perhaps not where you want the biggest unchecked influence coming from because it's it's like to, likely to be of the wrong kind. The the other main topics we basically covered last time because, of course, you you are representative in terms of Republicans for Renewal. Uh, in, akin to some of the things that Trump had on his agenda. So it was taxation, infrastructure, which has become very topical with the recent legislation, the international organizations we talked about, trade, regulation of big tech, and then the military engagements. But whenever you and I start talking, then time flies pretty quickly. So I, I want to pivot a little bit or, or shift gears, as the common used phrase these days, and talk a little bit about your European affiliations, because... Something has happened on that front that you you've sort of a group that's being formed cross uh, cross country grouping. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Yeah. So my political nonprofit organization, uh, Republicans for National Renewal, uh, we see the value in having more contacts and strengthening relationships with these uh, nationalist populist parties in Europe. They have more and that sounds scary when you say that. I mean, to a European, that sounds like Mussolini and Hitler. So we just need to to put a little bit of color on that. Okay, yeah. So for us, it's new. Um, uh, 
basically it's it should not be in our position is it should not ever be a dirty word to put your your people in this country first i understand there's some historical issues with that in europe and i think it was done the wrong way but even today it's done the right way in countries like hungary and poland uh and what i mean by that is that uh, it shouldn't be controversial uh for a country to put its citizens first for example in your own family even the most leftist families uh they don't put other children other families before their own uh when have you ever heard of a uh, liberal family inviting the neighbors over and telling their own kids stay in the rooms you can't eat while we feed the neighbor's kids and maybe you get the crumbs that doesn't happen they take care of their kids first and then maybe they'll invite friends over and take care of them too but the family is going to come first and so it doesn't political ideology aside your own comes first and that way you can help others so it's not uh reject others it's not don't help others the the notion of national populism uh, especially the way we understand it and our position of it and the way it works i think in countries today is that it's put your own citizens first um and then you can still help out others if you have the resources for it but if you have especially if you have limited resources mm. you can't really afford to take care of other countries because your own people are going to suffer and so when i say national populism i simply mean take care of your your country and citizens first uh doesn't mean that you can't help others mm. and so that's why and so when i say that yeah so we have uh, good ties with hungary uh the lega party in italy uh they've been instrumental in helping us out uh with different uh events we've had uh especially with hungary so we had a uh question and answer event it was an online event with the foreign minister peter siarto uh it was very informative just about even uh global politics i suppose but also the relationship between uh the usa and hungary under president obama and under president trump and uh foreign minister siarto pointed out that under obama is very antagonistic towards hungary and its policies and their president trump is probably the best relationship they've had with the us ever and so just an example of the different ideologies and how they mesh and um yeah we've had also i've had a good conversations with the family minister in hungary uh katalin novak uh she's wonderful and we appreciate uh the policies she's helped institute um but even extending Lega. to sweden um i think as well no yeah we had uh so the sweden democrats we have some connections with them uh, we think they're doing great work over there uh and it's i know over there it's probably controversial <laughs> to say these things but to us when you know we had uh tobias anderson come over to our uh, inaugural event at cpac 2020 and he was telling us that in sweden it was controversial to say that sweden has a culture that you should appreciate swedish culture and so to us in america especially conservatives in america we thought wow that's insane but over there to some people in sweden i guess people on the left over there think that 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 sounds right you shouldn't be proud of your heritage or your culture and so i think they they overreact possibly to uh, maybe historical wrongs or things they perceive as historical wrongs and now they're just against themselves uh it's this kind of pathological altruism mm. and i think that there's nothing like i said it shouldn't be a dirty word that uh you're a, a nationalist or national populism um if people conjure up different ideas about it oh it means uh you know nazism or whatever that's i think that's on them 
um, all it means by definition is just putting your people in its country first. Mm, yeah. Just as you would put your own family first, your own family members. Um, it doesn't mean that you're a bad person. It doesn't mean that you hate anyone. But I see, yeah, I see, I see countries just as I do individuals, you know, they, they have a soul and they have a, a, a very particular history that has, you know, formed their character and their traditions and conventions, the laws and practices and so on and so forth. And part of what makes the world, I was so lucky to have kind of grown up in the 80s and 90s where you could travel everywhere and there was like an exuberance of eclectic culture. You know, each country was uniquely itself. And even within countries, you know, I've lived in 11 different countries. They, there was such variety and expression of this um, in, in individuality, whether the individuality was an individual or, or a culture or a region of a country or, or a country itself. And it's, it's, it's what life is all about. I mean, when you look outside, it's the multiplicity and variety of things that make it so divine, right? Um, yeah. And somehow we are now being... Uh, that's being stigmatized in the name of some, I don't know, faceless, ideological, bureaucratic notion that everything must conform to exactly the same. So whilst insisting on certain new rights, they do so at the expense of other rights. So it's kind of a very peculiar way of arguing things. Yes, Casper, that's exactly right. And there's a, uh, so I guess the best way to explain it is that we want every country to have their, their specific culture, keep their culture, keep their traditions, uh, but also fight against, join together and fight against this kind of globalism, this uh, notion that you should um, abdicate your own traditions and your own culture for the sake of uh, this global community. And so kind of water down your culture, water down your traditions and mesh in with uh, globalism. No, we want every country to be their specific country with their specific culture. And that's why we had Republicans for National Renewal co-hosted the Transatlantic Patriotic Summit, where we got the representatives of the youth wings, a lot of national populist parties across the country or across Europe and the United States. So we had uh, ruling parties in Poland, Slovenia, uh, Estonia, Italy, um, work on some other ones. I mean, we had quite a few other ones. And they all kind of got together and we connected them with college Republicans, um, the National Young Republicans, and kind of had just a hour, hour and a half long discussion online where people were talking about the different problems they were facing in their respective countries. But it was all very similar, right? The issues, I think some of the focal issues were family and immigration. And based on different countries, it, changed, it varied. But overall, I think it's kind of a, a fight against this globalism attitude, this very, very leftist um, of conformity, new, new world order, conformity type stuff versus this uh, nationalist populist of the people. Uh, your country comes first and then you can take care of others kind of attitude. And so everyone was everyone was uh, in sync on the issues. Right. So everyone opposed transgender children. Uh, we think that's child abuse. Um, everyone opposed illegal immigration, for example. Uh, people wanted um, good immigration that was vetted. You knew it was coming in and they respected your country. Yeah, you know, an international institution. Yeah. 
and and also from what I gather, you know, in, international institutions that are shaped and governed by the constituent countries rather than one that has an agenda of its own. I think that's a absolutely critical. Um, well, to give to give your uh, audience also an example of that. So even before we had this event and before we um, were as big as we are now at uh, CPAC 2020, I was there as an attendee as well. And they had panels with representatives of different governments. I believe it was uh, Japan, South Korea, uh, Brazil, but they were all united in a one cause against this globalism, against this uh, kind of international communism, whatever you want to call it, against the elites, et cetera. They were all united and all understood this kind of national populist conservatism is against this push internationally for leftism and communism. And so I think that we, we're not really necessarily touching on anything new. We're just helping push that uh, unity and um, cooperation between national populist parties and countries fighting against this notion of the elites, globalists, communism, who want to kind of water down the cultures uh, of these different countries. Mm. And so it's not, we're not doing anything new. We're just helping to push it forward. But it's, I think it's fairly mainstream, even within conservative politics, at least in the United States. And if you, you know, if your audience is interested, go watch uh, some of the panels from CPAC 2020, where you did have representatives from different countries on the same panel talking about almost identical issues as we talked about in our Transatlantic Patriot Summit. And uh, and with that, I want to I want to move on to to the last one because I want to get a little bit of history and also the contemporary situation at a sort of macro level, nonpartisan, etc., of what's happening in the world and particularly in the states. So I have this notion that uh, the U.S. is is kind of the focal point for what's about to uh, what's been unraveling in the world and and where the world is heading. And I think a lot of people intuitively kind of acknowledge that. So I've had this thesis that I've written a little bit about um, that for, for a few months, probably going back a year, that the US over the coming six months, and I mean the coming six months right now, is literally going to transform uh, in what I believe or what I call a rebirth. So the US is about to develop into either something very new that's alien to you know, the, the founding principles and the, um, the idea that lay behind the, uh, the, the, the war of independence and the, and the, and the constitution and uh, whether people like it or not, those were very firm principles that were supposed to last for eternity. And if you don't like it, you can go to another country. And it was the same with the states, the whole structure of U.S., which I think is 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 genius. So I, I keep saying this. I think the U.S. Constitution is a, it's 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 almost biblical in its in its cleverness in which it's designed, so that each state is self-governed within a larger union, which has very restricted allocations of authority. The sovereignty lies with the states that then granted to a central government, but only in very restrictive areas that are clearly defined. And there is to be no encroachment uh, upon the uh, independence of, 
of the state. So we saw this, of course, in relation to slavery. And by the way, the Republican Party was the anti-slavery movement. The Democrats were pro, just to establish that for those people who are historically ignorant. Um, uh, and I, I want to use a few phrases there because I want to talk about what, what's happening in the States and where we are likely to go. And I want to talk about this notion of cessation, whether it's likely, whether it's doable, uh, whether it's something we need to watch out for, or whether it might be a distinction that's going to happen geographically and politically that allows some of the states to go back to the founding principles and re-emerge as the U.S. was created and others that will go in a very different one. You, you mentioned the word communism. I've been thinking long and hard about the right terminology. I think I would call it uh, oligarchic state corporatism in a very unholy alliance, um, which is almost dictatorial. And we, I think we're seeing that all around the world in relation to COVID now. But let me just um, do a, a, another quote because I think they, they're always useful to have and it shows that we've done our homework in relation to this interview. <laughs> and so this is, yeah. this is James Madison. And, uh, and it can be a little bit difficult to understand because he's a very clever man and he's very good with words, but we'll see if we can disentangle it. So liberty is to faction and faction is, is differentiation, conflicts, disputes, um, et cetera, et cetera. So liberty is to faction what air is to fire, an element without which it instantly expires. But it could not be less a folly to abolish liberty, which is essential to political life, because it nourishes faction, than it would be to wish the annihilation of air, which is essential to animal life, because it imparts to fire its destructive agency. So in this is as I see it, is exactly what I've just been saying, that this constant um, sort of uh, tension between liberty and sovereignty and or state governance and state in relation to central government is perpetual. And there needs to be room for this to exist because the individual needs liberty and they need liberty to move and, and live the life that they wish but this factionality is necessary for liberty because if you have two people who are given the rights, endowed with the rights of liberty, there will be, let's say, conflicts in inverted commas. There will be disagreements. So we need a legal framework that resolves these disagreements. I think most other states, or virtually every other state, is created from a sort of uniform, top-down, hierarchical structure because they've been very homogenous. Um, they've been, you know, limited geographies that could, with a great deal of homogeneity in terms of the makeup of the population. So, have, have you got a comment to that? Is am I completely in the wrong ballpark? Or no, absolutely. Uh, we can spend another five hours on this one. But I'll, <laughs> Let's I'll do it. Um, so, as a practicing attorney, I understand uh, the Constitution and how a lot of laws are applied. And um, you're right. So the, the state, there's a set, the 10th Amendment when the Constitution that gives the states their rights apart from the federal government. They're allowed to make their own decisions. When it comes to things like uh, civil rights, they can't encroach or, or uh, do less than the federal standard, but they can do more. And so they have freedom in that sense. Uh, as of right now, you see uh, states like Florida really pushing back against the federal government. Mm. Texas is as well, and some other red states to an extent. Um, but I think there's probably more tension than ever before due mm. to the 
COVID lockdowns, the vaccine mandates, vaccine passports. Um, I think, yeah, you're right that uh, probably secession is on the table now more than it has been in the last couple of centuries. I think there was a, a Texas representative who proposed secession. Uh, I think there's a gubernatorial candidates here in Texas who have kind of hinted at secession maybe needed. Um, will it happen? I'm not sure. Um, I'm not clairvoyant, but that's certainly more on the table now than it has been in any of our lifetimes. Um, and not just from a state rights perspective, but uh, such a, I think a lot of the grassroots folks and what I've heard from other people is that uh, the kind of leftist states such as California, New York, the West Coast, East Coast, they are so detached from the Southern states and the Midwest states that what's the point of being in a union with them? What if they're okay with cheating in elections and we're not, they're always going to win. And so Democrats will always win every single national election. And so there has been that sentiment. I think it's kind of a pessimistic outlook. Uh, I think if, uh, well, I fully expect President Trump to run in 2024, and I'll support him because he does. He you, you think he will? Yeah, I fully expect him to, and uh, I will support him. And I think he he's going to galvanize the grassroots so much that he probably would still win despite any kind of cheating. I think you're always going to have cheating in elections, and people who think that there's 100% secure elections may be naive, and maybe they should do some research. But there's never a secure 100% secure election. There's always some cheating. It's just that you try to minimize the cheating. Maybe there's a lot of countries who minimize, who do minimize the cheating. Uh, but in countries like, for example, Mexico, they don't have minimized cheating. In fact, they go door to door and bribe people for votes. Uh, so, no, you're always going to have cheating. It's just a matter of keeping it minimized. And I think uh, that's getting harder and harder to do in the United States. But um, I believe if President Trump does run again, he will win if cheating is minimized. But if, if it's not minimized, I think people will be more likely to support secession and say, you know, look, we just want secure elections. Um, these other states, these other coasts don't really want that. Or they have such a, I mean, for example, if you're, if some of your audience members have never been in the United States, came to Texas for a week, and then they went to California for a week, it would be a night and day difference in the culture, the people, the politics. Uh, same if they went to New York for a week and then they went to uh, Wisconsin for a week, mm. night and day difference. And so it's kind of like different countries within the same country, but that's the point of the 10th amendment is to preserve your rights as a state and your sovereignty as a state. And yeah, I think come next year, it's probably gonna get more chaotic. I mean, I'm sure people already realize it is chaotic right now, but mm. I think uh, depending on how the, you're gonna see a lot of Republicans win in 2022 because People are fed up with this administration. They're fed up with the policies of the left. Even regular folks who aren't very politically involved are fed up with it. And so they're getting involved now. So we're going to see a red wave. But it's a matter of how big is that red wave going to be? Is it going to be a, a small red wave? We get the majority, but not quite. Or is it going to be a massive red wave that overtakes everything? Uh, I, think, uh, I think you're right. Uh, if... Uh if we're allowed to to do this outrageous demand, which uh, uh, requires, you know, uh, identification, personal identification when you vote. I mean, I know it's crazy. 
<laughs> imagine, imagine anyone would propose such a thing. Um, right. <laughs> but I think, I mean, the, the 14th Amendment is also, I think, extremely relevant in this regard. And this was the sort of antebellum dispute about citizenship and sovereignty. So there's sovereignty of the individual, but it was really about where does sovereignty lie? And of course, the whole civil war is is uh, is is is, a, is around this this kind of dispute. So is the sovereignty with the state, uh, or is it with the central government? Citizenship. The argument was citizenship is of the U.S. as a as a whole, the the, the nation with a capital N, and therefore uh, there were some rights uh, that uh, superseded those of uh, of the states. So there's a big constitutional issue: the central union overreach versus the state's obligation to respect. You know every citizen's primary allegiance being to the union, but their 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 where they conducted their lives were were in the in the respective states. But can you can you give us a quick sort of just you know description of the Fourteenth Amendment, what it is? Because th- these are things that are very topical now. Sure. Yeah. So they. Um... I think a big, well, the 14th Amendment has kind of been litigated quite a bit, and so it's kind of transformed throughout the years. Mm. Um, I think towards the end of it, it's kind of uh, basically an incorporation of rights. Uh, if you're allowed them at the federal level, you're allowed them at the state level. Uh, but I think it also uh, allows for birthright citizenship. Mm. And I think President Trump spoke on that a little bit. He was saying, well, we need to take a look at that and stop this birthright citizenship. People denounced him as racist because a lot of you know, illegals would come over, have a child here, and now that child's a citizen. And so you can't- That's why many of these gangs, those interrupt, had many pregnant women coming back to these two NGO reports. So they literally went into villages and they hold the families hostage. They take the pregnant women and they bring them across the border. Yeah, and uh, by the way, for- And then for they force them to say that that's their husband. And so he subsequently gets, and he, of course, the minute they cross the border, the guy disappears. Right, and that's and that's a great point also, but even for reference, because um, people down it as racist, like I said, uh, Canada had a big problem with Chinese pregnant women mm. coming over for mm. a while, having children there, and they were becoming citizens. Mm. And so after the huge influx, Canada said no more birthright citizenship. Mm. Yeah, they're not denounced as racist. You don't hear about it on the fake news media. Uh, President Trump even mentions considering that, and he's considered a racist. And as you said, now these women are coming under duress. So in, in Canada, it was uh, pregnant Chinese women purposely coming there for that. What the example you gave is under duress. So basically at gunpoint, knife point, mm. some kind of threat, being told to come here and have their child here so that they can be the father and then do whatever they want. And so, yeah, I think that seriously does need to be looked at. And we've been working with candidates for the new Congress coming up in 2022 who seem very supportive of taking a look at that and possibly doing something about it. Mm. Um, I know it's supposed to be a touchy top topic right now, but I think that will come to the forefront sooner than later because if you don't do anything about it, yeah, you're just going to be basically invaded um, by people of a different country. Uh, we've already had seen that at the southern border. And they're not going to vote the same way. They're going to vote Democrat uh, by and large. And that's pretty much what the Democrat Party wants is more people from South America or other countries who will support big government uh, handouts, et cetera. And that's their plan. Mm. But just going back to the cessation uh, issue, 
actually goes back further than that, but it's I feel like it's getting um it's getting heightened now. But as far back as I think it was 2005, there was a guy called Thomas Naylor. I don't know if you remember him. He was at the time he was even a retired economics professor. And he published a book where he <laughs> where he was advocating Vermont uh, to withdraw from the union. And in in uh, early 2009, I forget exactly when it was. That was the Rick Perry, who was the yeah. obviously the, the the governor of Texas at at the time. He came close to threatening cessation. Um, and he said something along the lines of cases, te- Texas might at some point be so fed up that they'd want to secede from the union, uh, though he he didn't at the time see any reason why Texas should do that. Um, but yeah, it's it's uh, it's been reverberating, that's for sure. Yeah, Texans seem mixed on that. I think if you asked any uh, small town Texan about that, they'd probably definitely be in favor of it. When you go to the bigger cities... You see some people saying, uh, yeah, it sounds like a good idea, but what about federal funding, et cetera? They have some kind of, you know, some qualms about it, but I think it's uh, definitely getting traction, especially now more than ever. That's certainly been brought up multiple times, but I think now really, if it's going to happen, it'll probably be within the next year or two, you'll see some legislation coming forward about it. If it is going to happen, I'm not saying it is, but if it were, you'd see it within the next few years. I think we're at, we're at a uh, culmination point. So it's kind of, uh, if we don't win in 2022 big, you'll probably see a lot more things like that happening. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this, uh, I mean, for those, I guess, sort of historically interested, uh, uh, Abraham Lincoln had a vision of nationalism, uh, which resulted in the Declaration of Independence. Um, Rather than perhaps as as people mistakenly think it's the constitution, uh, it was more like a perpetual bond um, and a foundational national document, and, that, and that's why Fourth of July is the founding date. Um, you know the Articles of Association, which was you know the more fragmented um, structure towards the the full blown one in seventeen seventy six. Um, that was a counter argument at that time. So this is this is continuous by, I think it was Jefferson Davis, John Calhoun, Callan, mm-hmm. is that how you yeah. and uh, and Thomas Blue, Jefferson, yeah. um, that the union was formed by independent sovereign states combining forces uh, to defeat the British. So it's a it's a it's a temporary formation of for a particular purpose. Uh, so that's the Tenth Amendment and and the Confederacy, the article I think it was called the Articles of Confederacy. Um, that they hold primacy because it was in a situation of crisis where they are coming together. Um, So so to some of them, a national government was a heresy and the proponents were were almost infidels that it should sort of go beyond those powers. I I just think it's interesting because it's it's kind of history playing itself out again. Yeah, you're right. It's kind of uh, going against everything the uh, founding fathers wanted to institute here, which was a very limited federal government, power to the states and to the people. And also I'd note that George Washington would be considered a isolationist these days. He was saying stay out of foreign wars, generally foreign affairs. And so, yeah, you're right. I think it's a uh, fast forward uh, 260 years or so. And um, we're having a lot of the same problems. I don't think any problems or issues we're having today are new. I think uh, they've been dealt with at some point in the past and, 
we're just kind of going through the cycle and now we're at the apex of it. Yeah. And this is what people don't understand about the legislative college uh, and how that works and why it was set up the way it was because we, it, they didn't want democracy because they, they wanted republicanism. And these are two notions that people completely misunderstand in the context of, of US political history. Um, probably too long to disentangle right here. But but there was a, a famous Supreme Court Justice, uh, Thomas, um, and he invoked a similar conception of federalism. I think it was in, in, in the term limits dissent, um, where the ultimate uh, source of, of, of the Constitution's authority is basically the consent of the people of each individual constituent state, not the consent of you know the whole undifferentiated people of the nation as a as a as a whole. Um, so it's the people of several states that are the only, let's say, true source of power. So so the people of each one of these constituent states retains their separate political identities. Um, and it's the Congress of those, um, which is the representatives of those distinct entities that makes the decision on their behalf. So not a democracy where it's the, just the average of the whole. It's each and every constituent part that has to reflect its own, let's say, membership base or, or, or um, inhabitant base, the people of each, every state. And this, this is something I think is completely lost Many Americans and contemporary, uh, but certainly virtually every European, perhaps other than a few professors, scholars. Yeah, you're right. There's probably, I imagine, a lot of the European audience who may see the mainstream fake news media and say, oh, they always hear and you always hear on the mainstream media. Well, this threatens our democracy or uh, this goes against our our, uh, democratic notion. Well, we don't have a democracy. Uh, we have a republic, as you pointed out. And people don't realize also in the United States that what affects them most are local politics followed by state politics. Federal politics affects them, but it's kind of removed. Um, it's an after the fact. What's going to affect you directly is going to be your local and state politics. Uh, but also that's why you, you elect representatives from your district to go to Congress and represent you on a federal level. And so it is pretty ingenious, the system we have, uh, where it's, you know, you have the local, state, and federal levels, but it's all elected from different districts and from the people. Now you have some, what's called gerrymandering and Mm -hmm. redistricting, where you determine where that group of people are, who's going to have that specific representative. That's a multi-layered system, which is designed, first and foremost, to represent the people and that's the the whole point of it now when you have tinkering with it when you have uh election fraud and large numbers when you have things like that now it's kind of being perverted or when you have the establishment where you can elect someone from even a uh, a very conservative area or even a very leftist area but they go to the establishment and just do the bidding of uh, global elites and corporatism now you have a perversion of the system but the system was originally intended to represent the people first and foremost and to have the consent of the governed, as you pointed out. And so, yeah, I think now even uh, Benjamin Franklin said, you know, this, we uh, created a constitution, but we'll see how long it'll last. Mm-hmm. He wasn't very optimistic about uh, people being able to keep it as it is for 
hundreds of years. And um, I think now we're seeing that. Now we're seeing it. And it, yeah, yeah, I we're mean, seeing the, yeah the things he was warning about. Where now it's coming to fruition. Absolutely, and that's why these next six months, in my view, are absolutely critical. Um, but yeah, I, the way to understand it, I think, is because people confuse or conflate the the, the the notion of democracy in this context. It was precisely to ensure what we understand as one inherent democratic principle, which is the protection of the small right of the minority so it was to avoid that one large populous state so let's say for example california where you've got a lot of uh, immigration coming and because of the social religious makeup they're having a lot of children to allow one state in terms of size dominating all the others so that precisely acknowledging because of the geographic cultural historical and religious differences and people's ability to gravitate towards that represents them the best you should avoid that one state just because it has more people ends up dominating lives of the others and that's why you have this legislative college so even small states like maine and new you know all the new england states as an example um can can still have representation of a much higher proportionality than uh, than would otherwise be the case so that one state determines national policy. But I'm, I'm going to sort of quasi-finish with something that I'm hoping will also be a little bit of an enlightener even for, uh, for, for American listeners, um, which I think is super relevant in, in everything that we've been talking about here in the last 15, 20 minutes. And that's in, on the 18th of April in 1961, was, for those people who don't know, actually a remarkably fateful day in American history. It's not one that's much discussed because on that day, there was a very talented 54-year-old army officer and he was offered to command the Union Army. I wonder if you can guess who he was. On that same day, nevertheless, he learned that his home state of Virginia, now you can probably guess who he is, had decided to secede from this very Union whose army he was asked to lead and he was going to because, you know, there was conflict. But now he finds himself in this personal conflict between the state to which he originally belongs and then this new, you know, union representation. And although he was a Southerner, he wasn't exactly enthusiastic about the institution of slavery. And this will surprise a lot of people. He also opposed cessation. So you can tell this guy is really riddled with conflicts. And he said that the framers of, of the Constitution would never have exhausted so much labor, wisdom, and forbearance in forming the Union if it was intended to be broken up by every member of, of the Union at will. So he acknowledges that you can't just secede and, on a whim, whatever the political winds are. However, in the end, he decided that his primary allegiance nonetheless was to his state, proclaiming, I cannot raise my hand against my birthplace, my home, my children. Exactly like you were saying earlier on, Mark, where your true allegiance lies. And five days later, this officer, and that, 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 here comes the name, Robert E. Lee, became the commander-in-chief of the Virginia military. And within a month, he was the Confederate general. So if he had accepted to head the Union Army, the Civil War would probably have ended very differently. Little little piece of history. Yeah, you're exactly right. I think uh, you're right that 
a lot of Americans are also ignorant to that uh, because uh, the South is so villainized in the modern education system, especially the public school education system. Mm. But uh, even from generals from the Union up to Abraham Lincoln himself said that mm. Robert E. Lee was an honorable man, uh, a good man. He was fighting for what he believed in and what he thought was right. And it wasn't slavery. It was for his state and for the people that supported him. And so I think there's a lot of, uh, it's not as black and white Sick, as the, yeah. the mainstream media would say it is. and as Or even the educational establishments. Yeah. Right, yeah, the, the, yeah, academia in general. If you actually look at the historical articles, you would see that it was much more gray area where it wasn't necessarily about pro-slavery, anti-slavery. It was also states' rights, which is the federal government. And what each individual thought would represent their country or their constituents the best, and it was precisely all these gray area new, uh, nuances and and varieties of opinion and different ways of of living life that you know your your constitution was written and what America was always supposed to be, which, which is why we we're taking I think a very radical step away from what was the you know the formation and what lay behind the formation of the U.S., which is why I think. As I said, the next six months are going to be monumental in rebirthing it. Right. And I appreciate you and the Free Observer for kind of covering that and getting that word out there, um, especially since it's a it's an undisputed fact, historical fact. It's just one that's not discussed very often or not mentioned at all by those with an agenda. And so it's good for you to even mention it. And whether or not our opinions are you know, against it or for it or whatever they are, is irrelevant to the fact that those were the historical objective facts. And so uh, it's great that you're getting that out there. Uh, liberty and faction, they go hand in hand. We just got to make sure that factions are controlled under uh, some sort of legislative judicial framework and then, you know, let people live their lives. Exactly. Uh, and with it's that, <laughs> <laughs> it's been brilliant, Mark. Thank you so much for coming on. Absolutely. Appreciate it, Casper. It's been a pleasure being on. See you soon on the next one when we, uh, when we interpret what's been happening over the, the coming six months. Yeah, I was going to say, like, have me back on in five or six months, and uh, I'm sure we'll have a very interesting conversation. We shall, if not before. Well, uh, to your audience, if, uh, if they'd like to follow Republicans for yes. National Renewal, they can follow us uh, on Twitter, Getter, and Instagram, at RN Renewal. Uh, we're also R-N. on Facebook. Yeah, RN Renewal. And we're also on Facebook, Republicans for National Renewal. And so we appreciate your support. And uh, thanks for tuning in. Brilliant. See you, see you next time.